Welcome to the Chicago Open Archives podcast. This is one of a series of interviews that we're calling Archival Origin Stories, in which we talk to Chicago area archivist members about what they do, how they found themselves doing what it is that they do, and why archival work matters. I'm Andy Stedham, past chair of the Chicago Area Archivist Steering Committee and Senior Archives Specialist in Heritage Communications at Rotary International. I'm here with Frank Valella, Director of the Rosenthal Archives at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Frank, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure, Andy. (laughs) I'm going to start with the question that I'm going to ask everybody. When you meet someone from outside of the profession, how do you describe what it is that you do? The first thing I would probably say is that I'm responsible for all of the materials that document the history of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Association. And the association is generally the governing body under which the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Chicago Symphony Chorus, uh, other entities, including the board of directors, the institute, which is our education arm, also all of the materials that document the building because we do own our building. But I'm responsible for all of the materials that document the history of all of those entities. And that includes, of course, correspondence, contracts, photographs, recordings, artifacts, memorabilia, etc. What would you say is the average response that you get when you, when you tell people that? <laughs> I would say the the uh, average response is asking about uh, the quantities of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, how much stuff is that? How many photos is that? How many recordings is that? People are generally most interested, when it comes to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, of course, most generally interested in the recordings. Mm-hmm. And we, of course, have all of the commercial recordings. We started commercially recording back in 1916, but we also have a number of radio broadcasts oral histories, pre-concert lectures, etc. You've been at the symphony for a long time. Yeah, I first came to the association as a member of the Chicago Symphony Chorus. Actually, my degree was in music performance from DePaul University, my my second degree, that is. So uh, after I graduated, I auditioned for and got into the chorus, and that was in 1992. And during my first season in the chorus they would frequently have job postings on the bulletin board at rehearsals. And uh, one of those uh, bulletin board postings was for a part-time job in the Chicago Symphony's archives. And the first time I interviewed for the job, I actually didn't get it. The job went to someone else. And about six months later, thankfully, he didn't work out. So I applied for it a second time. It was for a part-time cataloger, reference assistant, etc. So the second time I interviewed, I got the job, and that was in April of 1993. So I've been there a little over 26 years. Mm. It's interesting to me that, um, and uh, the reason I asked how long you'd been there, is that your first answer to what it is that I do is about the symphony and about the things there in the symphony. So would you say that it's true that your your work with archives has always been associated with the work with the symphony? Oh, most definitely, yeah. My degree in music, of course, was in performance, but I had a strong knowledge of the repertoire, mm-hmm. the symphonic and the choral repertoire. And I think that really helped me initially 
get that processing and cataloging job. So for the first 10 years or so, I worked with Brenda Nelson Strauss, who started the archives at CSO in 1989, just before the orchestra's centennial. She was my mentor, and she I was her right arm. We were a really, really great team. But then in 2002, her husband got a job at uh, Indiana University as head of the recording engineering faculty. So the family moved to Indiana. Brenda uh, resigned, of course. I was promoted to her job, but then I wasn't replaced. So I've been a, a lone arranger for... Um, for 16 years. Mm. Do you find yourself, again, going back to this scenario where you're describing this to somebody who's not necessarily familiar with the archives, then answering questions like, you know, I have a lot of old photographs. Actually, the inquiry that we get most is, I've got a bunch of old recordings. Yes. I've got a bunch of old LPs and these old I put old in quotes, I guess. Old can be either from the 1920s or old can be from the 1980s. It mm-hmm. all depends on the, the, the point of reference. And of, of course, we have, you know, a huge collection of, of uh, recordings, commercial recordings in our collection. But the, the recordings that people are most generally interested in giving us are like some of those, um, oh, who was the... It was on television when we were kids, KTEL and whatnot, that would have those <laughs> classical music's greatest hits mm, or something. And mm. so, so grandma had a bunch of those albums and their you know, descendants want to find a good home for these things. But of course, we always try to refer them to their local public library or a local music school or something like that instead of donating them to us. But it's frequently, it's not necessarily photographs. It's um, usually albums, but also it can also be sheet music. Mm-hmm. You know, grandma was a piano teacher and has, you know, all of the Beethoven sonatas, and we would love to donate this to the Chicago Symphony. Mm-hmm. And like, like most of the repositories in our profession, we're only interested in collecting things that directly relate to our institution. So if your grandmother was a soloist with the CSO or a member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, then maybe we would be interested in collecting those materials. But if grandma was a piano teacher at our local church or something like that, then again, we would refer them to a local library, a local, you know, music school or something like that. Does this happen? When someone asks you for advice about preserving their own photographs and recordings? Yeah, we we get that um, question a lot. And it's funny, some of my coworkers tease me that I probably have really fabulous photo albums at home. But it's funny when you spend a good chunk of your professional life organizing photographs, one of the last things you want to do once you get home or on the weekend is organize your photographs. So no, I don't have tremendous amount of fabulous photo albums. The photographs that I have on my computer, for example, are uh, kind of a mess. <laughs> the Chicago Symphony's photographs are in really good condition, <laughs> I have to say. But my personal photographs, yeah, they're kind of a mess. Describe uh, a little bit what you would say the typical day at the Rosendahl Archives is like. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say what a what a typical day would be. It depends on uh, whether or not it's the summer or during the season, for example. During the summer, we spend a lot of time catching up on processing and cataloging, of course, and getting ready for the coming season. During the season, which is more or less like a, a school year, September to June, I spend a lot of my time 
assisting my colleagues to make sure that they have the resources they need in order to do their jobs. Mm. For example, I provide a lot of information to our program book department so they can have all of the historical materials they need in order to prepare the program book for Mm. for concerts. I spend a lot of time with my colleagues in public relations Mm. in order to make sure that they have the you know first and most recent performance data for the soloist that's appearing uh, on a given week for press releases and other things. I spend a chunk of time writing obituaries mm. for classical music personalities who had some affiliation with the, with the Chicago Symphony. So we do a lot of stuff for the press. Uh, I spend some time with our colleagues in operations, for example, to make sure that they have the the resources they need in order to prepare for a, uh, for example, if there's a guest artist who's returning, what hotel they stayed at the last time. We have this this information in in, uh, in the artistic files, uh, what the stage setup was the last time Wynton Marsalis was here in the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, for example, something like that. Um, so I spend a lot of time not just not just you know preserving the the materials in our collection, but also providing access. To them, which I think is something that all of us, you know, do in our profession, uh, in our profession, preservation and access. But to that point about spending time supporting other units within your organization, you are an institutional repository. Can you talk a little bit about how the archives is situated in the org chart of the organization? Yeah, it, it's it's funny because when I talk with um, other orchestra archivists, we all fall into Different, org, uh, different parts of the organizational mm-hmm. chart. And actually, since I've been there, Archives has reported to public relations. For a while, we reported to the artistic department. For a while, we reported to the education department. And then it was back to PR. And now I actually report to the operations well, so department. Describe a little bit about how each of those reporting structures affected what it is that you did or how it is that you did it? Yeah, to be completely honest, it really didn't affect mm. how the archives operates. I've always perceived the archives as this, that sounds corny to say, but as this satellite that kind of goes around the entire organization. It really doesn't matter who we report to. We still function the same. We provide the same level of support to all parts of the organization, both internal and external constituents. And also, we receive materials from all corners of the organization. So despite who we've been reporting to in the past, we've always, in my opinion, always functioned, in essence, the same. Hmm. Do you have a records program, a formal records retention program? Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> to say it's Formal yes, might maybe be the, maybe formal is the wrong yeah, word. Yeah, formal to use. might be a little bit of a stretch. Um, I'm an army of one, so I'm also the institutional records manager. Mm-hmm. So we do have a very detailed records management schedule, of course, that's reviewed by our legal counsel um, every couple of years. And we every couple of years we institutionally take a look at it. We go around to the different departments and say, what kind of materials are you producing? What kind of stuff do you need to save? What formats are they in? Etc. So we do look at that uh, every couple of years, and actually it's probably time for us to look at it one more time. And then enforcing that is also part of my uh, job and is actually one of the things that I do during the summers. Mm. So once the season ends in June, uh, a lot of my colleagues, you know, breathe, uh, 
to take a, take a sigh of relief mm-hmm. that the season's over and we can relax a little bit over the summer. But that's really when archives work really ramps up. Yeah, that's helpful that you have this sort of structure, this calendar that you can work around and predict these people will have a little bit more time on their hands. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Great. I would have to say my favorite artifact in our collection is quite possibly the oldest artifact. We have a solid bronze Beethoven life mask that uh, the original mold is from 1812, uh, and this copy was made sometime after that. The mask is in the Theodore Thomas collection. Theodore Thomas is our founder and first music director. And we're trotting out the mask a lot this coming season because Beethoven's 250th birthday is in December 2020. So this coming season, we're performing a bunch, well, not a bunch, sorry, all of the Beethoven symphonies, several of the piano concertos, et cetera. And one of the great things about the life mask, a lot of people assume that it's a death mask. Mm. But if you look at images of the death mask online, you can see that there's a distinct difference between these two. Only 15 years separates the two, but there's a distinct difference. Um, The mask in 1812 was done uh, at a pivotal time in Beethoven's life. He was easily the most famous musician in Europe, if not the world. In 1812, he wrote the Heilige Stadt Testament, which is the document in which he first admitted to his family that he was going deaf. He wrote the letters to his immortal beloved in 1812. He had completed most of his pivotal works, but of course, after this, his health would decline. He would become intensely depressed. Of course, he would lose his hearing altogether. But then, of course, after that, he would produce some of the greatest music that we've ever known, the last string quartets, and of course, the Ninth Symphony. So it's really special that we have this mask in our collection because it represents not only this magnificent composer who was a favorite of Theodore Thomas, but also at this time in Beethoven's life, it was such a pivotal, pivotal moment. Uh, Listening to you talk about uh, objects like the life mask and the things that you do at the CSO, it may be self-evident, but I'm going to ask this question anyway. Why is this work important? And more specifically, why is this work important to you, Frank? One of, one of the things that I love about working for the CSO is I learn something new every day, whether it's about music, about performers, about the city that we live in, about the musicians that perform on the stage. I'm learning something new every day. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, how many times we've done a particular work or when was the last time we did this piece or we actually, you know, gave the American premiere of this. But also as a musician myself, it's it's been a blessing to be on both sides of of the stage, in essence. I remember several years ago when I was still singing in the chorus, I had spent a good chunk of the day cataloging scores in the Theodore Thomas collection. Mm. And one of those works was Thomas's score, his 19th century score to Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. And after a few hours, you know, climbing the shelves in the vault, I escaped for a moment, grabbed some dinner, came back to the building, put on my tuxedo, and walked out on stage and performed mm-hmm. Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. And halfway, halfway through, you know, 
many many things are going through your mind when you're doing when you're doing something like that. Sometimes it's the meaning of the music. Sometimes it's oh my god, am I going to hit this high note or do I remember this run or I have to sit here for you know ten minutes and not move and be silent. But about halfway through the piece, I remember thinking how lucky I was to be not only so intensely involved in the history of the ensemble, but also so incredibly involved in the present of the ensemble. And I don't know that many other people have, have been lucky enough to experience that, but every once in a while I have to pinch myself and remind myself, you know, how lucky I am to be, to be able to do both. Hmm. Well, Frank, I want to thank you for joining us for Chicago Open Archives podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Chicago Area Archivist COA podcast. We would like to thank our gracious interviewees, the Chicago Area Archivist Steering Committee, Engineer Allison Shine-Holmes, WFMT, and the project chair, Danielle Nowak, for their time and efforts. To hear more, you can find both season one and two of the COA podcast available on YouTube. For more information on the Chicago Area Archivists, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or our website, chicagoarchivists.org.